Take this opportunity to put your cell phones on vibrate or the sound low so that that ringtone doesn't embarrass you if it goes off. Because from now on, we implemented a new policy. If the ringtone goes off during the sermon, I'm going to stop and look at you for 30 seconds. This is a nasty photo that I was just sent of feet. I should show you this photo just to apply the, the member of the church airdropped me a photo. And so now I, I'm, my, my soul is wrestling. I feel like I got the devil and the angel on my shoulder saying, do it, do it. No, nah, don't do that. Don't distract from Do it, do it. The angel wins. Oh, man, this is a photo you don't want to see. I will say this. This photo will make all of us grateful for manicures. You're a podiatrist. May the Lord bless you and the things that you do for people's feet. As a matter of fact, to appreciate that, we should have a foot washing ceremony in the church. Jesus did it. Listen to y'all, man. What type of church is this? Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God. We, what happened to that? Oh, man, this is, this is what I mean. This is what I mean. This is what I'm talking about, man. Heart's hard. Oh, man. All right, one, one last thing, one last announcement that did get announced on April 14th. We are doing baptism. So if you are a believer and you've yet to be baptized, we would love to baptize you here in the church. Uh, we'd love to have that opportunity and to, to be a part of that with you. That's a, that's a special moment where you are, one, imitating Jesus as he was baptized. Two, you are publicly saying, at least in front of us, but in, in front of the Lord, that you follow, follow Jesus Christ. And it's something that Jesus commanded be done. It's something that he himself did. And so we have had the privilege of baptizing many people, and I would trust that we will continue to do so. But in order to do that, there needs to be, uh, on your part, you have to contact the church office, and then you would meet with Mike or myself to make sure that we, that you understand what baptism is. And then on April 14th, which is Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, we would have the service dedicated to baptizing those who want to be baptized. So please consider that. No pressure. Consider being baptized if you want to do that. If no one wants to be baptized, and we will have a different service set up for that Sunday. Don't forget also on April 21st, we are sharing that Easter Sunday with our, uh, the, the church who rents from us, Light of the Nations, the Hispanic Church. So we're doing a bilingual service on April 21st, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, Sigfredo, who's the pastor there. Yes, you can clap for that. You can clap. You can clap. Like, I, you don't have to golf clap around here. Like, you know, people... <laughs> If man is so deep, you'd be like, okay, is this okay? Should I clap? Just be like, yeah, that's what's up. And if, you, if no one else claps with you, then may the Lord bless you. So, um, but we will be uh, sharing the church. So that means it is, it is Easter Sunday. So that means if you are a family, please consider carpooling. I know that there's responsibilities and people have to come at different times. Some people have multiple cars in their family. Please consider consolidating that day so that we have enough parking spaces to accommodate both our church, both their church, and then any guests. There's a lot of people who come to church on Easter, sometimes out of obligation, but some of those people leave having faith in Jesus Christ. We want to make sure that we have enough room for that if that's what the Lord wills for us, all right? All right, if you are a guest here and you haven't been here, we are concluding. Uh, we're in the book of Romans, and we're concluding a chapter, Romans 6. So I want to apologize in advance to you, not because of what we're doing, but because you're coming in to the end of a part of a conversation. So there's a lot that has been said from this chapter that if you haven't been here, some of it, you just, it's going to be, it may feel hard to connect. So obviously this is the Bible. We believe that there will be something for you, but you are, I want to let you know you're coming in 
to a particular message that is the tail end of a chapter. So it's the middle of a conversation in terms of the book of Romans, or almost the middle of a conversation. But for our purposes today, we have been on a journey through this book. And so there are certain things that he's saying at the end of this chapter that will be relevant, particularly to those of us who have heard these taught. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible and you're familiar with this passage, then you should have no problem. But it could be a little bit, take a second to get used to, because he uses language and describes things in ways that we don't normally do in this day and age. We don't talk the way that they talk in the Bible. We don't use the same analogies. We don't have the same worldview because our world is much different than theirs was when the Bible was written. So having said that, we're going to look at three verses today, but our primary target will be two of the, the well, actually four verses, 20, 21, 22, and 23. We're going to end our, end in the, uh, Romans 6, which has been an amazing chapter. It's been a lot of good stuff from this chapter. I hope and trust that today will be no, no different. So I'm going to, I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump in. Father, your word that we call the Bible, that your spirit inspired people over thousands of years to write a a cohesive narrative, a cohesive story from beginning to end that describes who you are, that describes who we are, that describes what you've done, and that describes what we must do. And it's amazing that over the thousands of years that these 66 books have been written, that you allowed them to be preserved. And now to this day, instead of having to guess or to look at pictures or to make up stories about what does it mean to follow you and to know who you are, you've given us a a, a written account of what we are to do in light of what Jesus has done. We are aware that despite what the culture thinks, despite what even maybe some in the room think that you are real, Jesus, and you you came to die on the cross to forgive us for our sins. And, And sometimes believing in you is not fun, it's not flashy, it's not as exciting as giving in to certain habits and patterns that we used to or sometimes still do, but the reality is still the same. You are God, and you died on the cross to forgive us and have given us your spirit to obey you. And so today is no different. The words today in these final verses of chapter 6 encourage us, remind us, and challenge us to fight the good fight of faith. For you tell us in your word to persevere, to fight, to think, to If living as a Christian were easy, then we wouldn't have to persevere. We wouldn't have to fight. I don't fight things that are easy. I don't have to persevere for things that are fun and require a little effort. But I do for things that require my soul. So I pray that this morning, this morning would be, would add to the work that you're already doing in this church and the lives of people who are here. And for those who may be here for the first time or it's been a long time, Father, I pray that you would do a work in them as well. For you said in your your word that it doesn't come back void. I'll receive that as today will accomplish that as well. For your glory and our good, in your name we pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 20, I'm looking at the CSB translation, verse 20. It says this, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So this verse is obviously tacked on that. Now, we break passages up when we teach, right? I don't, the impression that I get when they wrote the letters, when Paul is the one who wrote it, the impression I get is not that Paul wrote a couple of verses, stopped, took a week off, wrote a couple of more verses, Stop, took a week off. That's not the impression I get, but we don't teach the Bible that way. We find 
ideas and thoughts and we break up those passages. And sometimes it's a very clean, easy break. Sometimes it's not a clean, easy break. Sometimes we make decisions to, to stop at a verse when we could have gone one or two more for a purpose. This, this passage is like that. I could have easily last week did verse 15 to 23 instead of stopping at 19. But I stopped at 19 for a very particular reason because I think what he's getting at in verses 20 and 23 and particularly 20 and 21 have use for us that if I would have done all eight verses, we may have missed something. So we're coming into sort of a clunky, not smooth verse. It's not like starting a new idea. He's completing an idea that he previously had. So this verse is tacked on to verse 19. Now, verse 19 says this, I am using a human analogy because of your weakness of the flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. So here's what he's getting at. The way you used to be, the way you pursued sin and pleasure and those things and the the, the vigor and the fervor that you pursued that lifestyle, now do it the same way as you pursue Christ. He's saying be just as excited, just as diligent to do it. I made a joke about when I used to be in the streets, I couldn't, I made plans to sin. We all did. You know, I joked around, said, meet me at 7 o'clock. Don't be late. Like we made plans to do, I made, there was preparation. It was, there was thought given to what things I'm going to get into that weren't honoring to the Lord. Well, what he's saying in verse 19 is this, do the same thing for God, though. Do the same thing for righteousness sake. Do the same thing in that way. If you were diligent to plan out what sins you're going to commit and, and enjoy those, then be diligent to plan out the righteousness that you're going to do and enjoy that. That's what he's getting at. He's saying you're free to do that now. So it's tacked on to verse 19, and he's, he's going from encouraging them to fight harder in the present in verse 19. But then in verse 20, he starts bringing them back to their past. He starts to deal with their past for a second. So first in the present, Fight harder, take the, who you were in the past with that same diligence, that same excitement, and do it towards righteousness. That's what he's saying, fight harder. But then in verse 20, he goes back to the past for a second. And he says this, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So here's what he's saying. When you were committing sin and living in a way that wasn't honoring to the Lord, you were free from the responsibilities of living for God. It means you had no desire or no motive to obey God. So he's trying to remind him, listen, there was a point. Now, verses like this are a challenge for people who may have grown up in the church. Like my children are growing up in the church. And as I said last week, I don't want them to share in my testimony. I don't want them to say, I was in the streets, I did this, I sold drugs, I went to prison. I, I don't want them to say that, have that testimony. I want them to have a testimony that says, I'm not sure when I became a Christian because I grew up in the church. Now, verses like this can be difficult if you don't have a sense of, I remember my life before following Jesus Christ. It can be a challenge if you've grown up in an environment where that's who you are, but it doesn't have to be because you can still look at yourself as not having believed in Christ all the time. I mean, there's no Christian alive that has always believed and followed and did what Jesus said. But for those of us who do have that moment and can remember that moment, verse 20 is a real stop and and think for a moment about the grace of God in your life. So he says, for when you were slaves of sin, meaning you were a slave, you had no other desires, you were stuck doing what you wanted to do. There were times in my own life where I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to stop doing this. In fact, one of the prayers I remember distinctly that was a turning point for me was December 31st, 1998. I was standing out in the cold. It was New Year's Eve. I was getting high, and I remember looking up to the Lord, and I just said, I remember these words exactly. And I said, Lord, I don't know if you're listening right now. I don't know if you care. I know this. I've gone too far 
in my life now away from believing in you. And if you don't help me now, I don't believe I'll ever be able to believe in you. That was all I said. There were no flashing lights. Sky didn't open up. No angel tapped me on the shoulder. I would have probably dropped dead if that would have happened anyway. So none of that happened. Three weeks later, I had violated probation. I was going to see a judge who told me, if I see you again in my courtroom, you were gone for the maximum amount of time for whatever charge you got and the time that I suspended from the last time you were in front of me. So I knew I was gone. I went to that courtroom and that judge added a couple of months to the probation that I was already on. It was a miracle. And I knew the Lord was saying, let's go, let's get it. Let's get it. I'm not who you thought I was. You thought I was going to crush you. I'm setting you free. Serve me. And that became the beginning of me sitting in this chair, chair this morning. So there's a sense where I can remember what it was like. And what God is saying is, when you had no desire or motive to obey God, you were free in terms of righteousness. There was no conviction. There was no conviction to honor the Lord. You did things and you enjoyed them. Now, now here's the thing about what he's saying right here. Why is he reminding them? Why is he reminding them that the fact that they had no desire to obey God before? Why is he reminding them of that? He spent much of his time urging them forward, forward. That's who you used to be, but now do this. But now he's bringing them back to who they used to be, what they used to do, this church. And by default, us. Well, why is he doing that? This could be a dangerous tactic. This could be a dangerous tactic. Because let's just be honest, some of the pleasure that we got from sins that we used to pursue feel stronger than resisting those pleasures right now. Some of the things that we enjoy doing that are sinful, that Jesus died on the cross for, that we're supposed to be saved from, are things that we still enjoy and have fond memories of. In fact, it took me a while before I thought things that I enjoyed and were funny that were sinful, I had to train myself to think they're not funny and sinful anymore, and I can't look back on those memories with the fondness I had when I did them. There are things that I did that I'd talk to people and we'd laugh at. So when I was a Christian, we'd be dying laughing. And then I realized over time, this isn't really funny, though. I still live with the consequences of those things. There are aspects of my personality that were shaped by that world that I still have to deal with. Jesus died on the cross because I did those things. But it took a while to do that. It's a dangerous tactic to get people to remember the pleasures of the past. You run the risk of people remembering those sinful actions with fondness. And this is typical. This is not unique. In Exodus chapter 16, these are people that God, God took Israel, saved them from the Egyptians. If you know the story of the, the Red Sea and God brought them through the Red Sea and and then he closed the Red Sea on the Egyptians as they were coming after the Israelites. And, and they celebrated in Exodus 15. And they, they immediately broke out and started to sing songs because they were grateful. They were loving it. The next chapter, a little bit after being away from Israel, being away from Egypt, and now they're kind of in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Sometime after being watching this super miracle happen, of the Red Sea closing, not even, not even referencing the, the stuff that they saw God do that didn't affect them, that he did to the Egyptians, like taking their first children, firstborn son, and things like that. One chapter later, here's what happens. They're talking to Moses. This is what it says. The Israelites said to them, Moses and Aaron, if we had only died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat, and ate bread and we, all the bread that we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. So you see, they were hungry. They were struggling. And the first thing they do is not, oh, God, please help us. It's, man, I liked it better back then. We ate like kings back then. But they were slaves. 
They were slaves. And they're saying, man, we had pots of meat, all the bread we wanted, people's stomachs are grumbling. They're offended at God. This is how it feels sometimes when we compare giving into sin versus being given the option not to sin. This, is a, this could be a dangerous tactic to remind them of who they used to be. Because let's be honest, pursuing God, being a Christian, resisting temptation is not fun. And sometimes the pleasure that we're resisting seems better than the pleasure that we we're supposed to be receiving. Well, in context, Paul wants people to see the benefits of their life in Christ versus when they weren't in Christ. This is what this verse is trying to get you to see. Remember before Christ, you were slaves to sin, and now you're not. Now you're free. This is the context in the past. This is what he's trying to get at by asking that. But there's another reason to remind them and us of our past slavery to sin. And I believe that Paul is setting up a strategy for believers to fight the good fight of faith. He's not just reminding them of this so people can get that old thing back. That's not what he's doing. He's setting up a strategy. The question that he's getting ready to ask sets up a strategy for believers to fight sin, and it comes right out of this passage. If applied, it helps us go on the offensive. It helps Christians go on the offensive, which is something I think many of us struggle with doing in the Christian life, is actually going on the offensive. Many of us are on the defensive. That's a different strategy. So he asked a question in verse 21 that I believe sets up us to have a strategy that helps us go on the offensive. And he says this in verse 21. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. So he's asking him, so in context, here's what he's doing. In context, he says in verse 20, let me remind you, when you were slaves, when you were a slave to sin, you were free from righteousness. And it's almost as if for people who are starting to think, man, them pots of meat were good. That was some good bread back then. You translate that to, man, I used to love to get high. We used to get smacked. Remember that time we, whatever, fill in the blank. Just as you get to think that way, he brings in this question. So in context, he's saying, look back at the fruit that that produced. In other words, by fruit, he means what was the results? What was the outcome? What were the consequences? What good came out of those things? What good came out of them? Because you're now ashamed of them. He's saying, what good came out of the lies you told, the people you slept with, all the things you did, because now you're ashamed of those things. Those things didn't promise what they delivered. Look at the distinction. You don't have to be ashamed to pursue righteousness and follow Jesus Christ, but you were ashamed of those things. You talk about those things as what God has to save you from. Now you confess those things as modes of failure and temptation. You were ashamed of them. So he's saying, look back at your life, not so that you can revel in how it was and how much you miss it, but how ashamed you were of the things that you did. So in context, he's talking to people who are now believers and saying, look back on the things you used to do that you're ashamed of. What was the fruit? What was the fruit that came out of that? What was the outcome? What came out of it? But as for us, there's another way to use this question. This verse gives us strategy to go on the offensive instead of playing defensive. Now, to say that, to explain that, let me say what I mean by offensive and defense. Let me explain what I mean. I believe I do this very much so. Many Christians, I believe, do this. We play defense as Christians. We know that we're, we know that we're tempted to sin. We know that we can still be sinful. And we're sort of, we feel attacked. Most Christians talk like, man, I'm being attacked. 
This stuff is just, I'm, it's just coming from nowhere. I'm being attacked. Thoughts happen. Desires happen. And now we're just trying to resist it. It's almost like we're standing in a room and we're just getting hit from all angles and we're just trying to, trying to block and so we're playing defense. And we're trying to make sure that we don't fall and we're, we feel like we're getting attacked and it seems like it's hard to fight and it's overwhelming. And so we're trying to, and then we're trying to grasp for scriptures and sometimes we're asking people to help us. But in reality, we're just fighting and trying to duck and hoping that we don't get knocked out. That's a defensive strategy. But the offensive strategy says, well, wait a minute, I can fight back though. See, a lot of Christianity, a lot of us, well, you know what happens? We wait till we're tempted, then we start fighting. That's defensive. No one is tempted by the same thing all the time, nonstop. As a matter of fact, there are probably, for many of us, certain patterns to when we get tempted. So let's just say you work at a job and you know it's difficult. There are people there that it's hard to interact with. You go there, you go into work, and then they treat you and act a certain way, and then you're offended, and now you're fighting your offense or you failed, and then you're trying to figure out what happened. That's defensive. But if you know that this situation is going to be difficult for you, then you start fighting before you get to the situation. That's offensive. And you would be surprised how many, listen, the Lord did not trick us, save us, and then say, okay, fight sin, and we just, and just made our gloves too heavy. You know, no one's holding sandbags that you can't lift your arms and fight. But what happens is we approach things as if we're just getting hit, like we're surprised that it came because we're defensive in our fighting. We need to go on the attack. We need to be offensive. And this question helps us to do that. Now, in context, he's asking them to look back and look at the fruit. What were the results? What was the outcome of the things you're now ashamed of? That's a good way to do that. So you look back. So how do we make this question offensive, to go on the offense? This is how we do it. We switch the question a little bit, and we frame it like this. What's the fruit? that's going to come out of this after I do it? What's going to come, what's the pain that's going to come after the pleasure? How am I going to feel if I give in to this after I give in to this? Now I'm thinking differently. Now I'm looking ahead. I'm not looking back now. Now I'm looking ahead. What's the fruit that's going to come out of this? What's the outcome of this when I'm going to regret doing it? I'm going to be ashamed of doing it. In context, if verse 23, if verse 21 says the outcome of those things is death, then ask the question in context. What's the death that I'm going to experience as a result of giving in to this? Don't lie, though. Don't lie. Don't smooth it over. Don't smooth it over. Don't, don't, don't all of a sudden have amnesia, short-term memory, none of that. Don't get narcoleptic and be falling off. No, no, no. Stay awake, be sober-minded, and think. Think. Because the stuff that we feel is frustration. We feel condemned. We feel hypocritical. We feel like God doesn't love us. We doubt if we really are Christians. We lose our confidence in our identity. We get angry. We're ashamed. We withdraw from the church and from God. We don't want to read our Bibles. We don't want to pray. We feel dirty. There's nothing good that comes out of it for that little bit of pleasure it got to tell a person what you really think or to give in the lust. After it, now you feel like, I'm dead inside. I feel hollow. I feel fake. I feel like I can't even lift my hands in church on Sunday. See, that's the thing that we need to focus on when we're tempted is what's the fruit that's going to come after this as a result of this? This is how we need to shape our thinking. I've lived so defensive 
that sometimes I feel like I'm not fighting. I just feel like I'm getting hit. And by the grace of God, you know, he's Mickey and I'm rocking. You can't wear a You're not getting tomorrow, Rocky. You know, it's like, put your dukes up, Rocky. Oh, hey, Mickey, I'm tired. We got to just hit me everywhere. That's what it feels like sometimes. I'm just rocky. I feel like in sinners, club a lane, rah, boom, and I'm just getting rocked. You got to have seen Rocky 2 and Rocky 3 to get there. Rocky 2, Rocky 3, old school. I ain't talking about Creed. It's the new Rocky. It's one of the old school, Rocky 2, Rocky 3. That's what it feels like, right? It feels like we're just getting hit. We have some victories. We ducked a couple of punches. Ooh, we missed that uppercut. But for the most part, we're just defensive. We're on the defense. But there are times where I need to think, you know what? I'm not really struggling right now, or I'm on my way to a situation that may tempt me. Okay, I need to think differently. Not just averse to not do it, but just what's the outcome of that? What's the result? What's the fruit? that's going to come from me giving into this. I mean, because the, the most ultimate, most dangerous is, is to walk away from the faith. You know how many people I know of that have walked away from faith in Jesus Christ because they just think it's not working, it's too hard or whatever? Because temptation is just like, man, I keep failing, like, what's the point? Underneath that, you know what that person is thinking? Well, God's probably tired of me anyway, so... God doesn't care anyway. Condemnation, frustration, lack of confidence in the Lord, all of that stuff is the fruit. Don't smooth it over. Don't smooth it over. This is what it feels like. This is what we need to help us be more offensive in our fighting and be like, nah, it's actually not as worth it. It's not as worth it. We need to have preemptive strategies. You know, there's a reason why soldiers go to boot camp. There are people who go to the military who are going to be working in an office. You're going to work in an office. You're not going to see any combat. But you can't go to the military and not do boot camp. Every, I forgot the the, the way they phrased it. It was like every soldier can shoot. You may be in there plucking paper clips after you become in the military. You might work in the office, be whatever you do. You might just be driving people around, but you have a gun and you know how to aim. You know how to shoot because you learned beforehand. Can you imagine being in a combat situation and bullets are flying and you're trying to figure out how to use your gun, how to, how to load the weapon in? You don't learn during war, you use your training. I think, and I'm guilty of this, I'm guilty as charged. I think for a lot of us as believers, we're not training. We're not training. All of a sudden, we're really tempted, and now we're trying to load the gun up, and the clip ain't fitting. And it's just like, forget it, boom, shoot me, kill me. Grace is amazing. God will forgive me. But what you feel like afterwards is terrible. You feel bad. You grieve. The two main reasons most of us give in to sin is one, it's too exhausting to keep fighting. And two, we're not as prepared as we could be. Now, the strategy, the first strategy that's too exhausting, we need to be praying and being encouraging to one another to keep fighting. There's no way around it. It's not like, oh, read this verse and you'll be like charged up. You know, it just doesn't work like that. (laughs) That charged up stuff works for Drake. For us, for us, that's not what happens. We don't feel that way. A verse doesn't sometimes change how you feel, right? But God never says fight when you feel different. He says fight when you feel tempted. The second reason we're not prepared. 
is we're not training. We're waiting until we're really tempted, and then we're trying to, and you don't want to. There are times, well, let's just be honest. There are times, depending on what the sin is, the temptation is, there are times where it just feels strong enough. You're just like, man, I ain't eating. It's too late. I'm not fighting. It's 11 o'clock at night. I'm tired. It's been a long day. And there's justification start going on. It's been a long day. I'm tired. I've been fighting all day. You can't expect me to keep uh, filling the blank. Whatever you say. We need to be preemptive. We need to have a different strategy that says, what's the fruit that's going to come out of this? How am I going to feel, really feel, if I give in to this? Most of the people, most of us. Now, when I say this, let me, let me, make, let me qualify. I'm talking about people who genuinely obey from the heart and have a desire to honor the Lord. I'm not talking about everyone who prefers, not all Israel is Israel. Everybody who professes to believe doesn't always believe. So I'm not talking about anyone who professes to be a Christian. I'm talking about people who really, who really want to honor the Lord with their lives will feel a sense of regret, frustration, and all those categories if you give in the sin. There are people who profess to believe that don't feel none of that. We'll go back to last week's sermon and find out what that really means. But for those of us who really feel that, we need to use this question from a preemptive perspective. How am I going to feel if I give in? And we know our temptations have patterns. You know, you know lust usually comes in the evening. We know that. It comes at night. You know that. Don't wait till the nighttime to fight it. Go after that bad boy at 2 p.m. where the sun is up and the day is bright. You start thinking then. There's situations you know are just a part of your life. You can't help it. There are people you just don't like. You struggle with. They say things. You're trying to love them. But it's a process. Hopefully it's not me. But it's a process. <laughs> It's a process. But you can't wait. You can't. I was talking to somebody recently, and I was talking about, um, as a matter of fact, yeah, me and this individual were talking, yeah, really recently. And we were talking about, this individual mentioned going to a family member and asking for forgiveness. And I just said, okay. And this person knows what I'm talking about. They're probably smiling right now. And I said, okay. Remember, though. When you do that, don't be careful, be mindful. This person may respond like, well, you should have asked for forgiveness a long time ago. Shoot, as evil as you've been acting. And I said, okay, the reason why I'm telling you that is because sometimes we think, I want to be humble, I want to take the high road, and I want to go do this. Let me tell you what take the high road means. Take the high road can mean I want to be arrogant and say I'm better than you, so I will apologize. But, what, what, but what's really happening is we're expecting you to apologize, too. I'm just going to do it first. Sometimes we try to manipulate the situation, right? I'm going to go and humble myself. Whenever you start saying, I'm going to humble myself, you ain't humble. Don't do that. Don't, I'm going to humble myself. It ain't humble. Just, so you say, I'm going to humble myself and go and do this. But what you really want is to get that person to apologize to you. And when they say, well, it's about time you apologize, I knew, then you get offended. Why are you offended? Because it was selfish ambition. I did this so that you could do that. If I'm doing it because it honors the Lord, I don't care what you say. You can say whatever you want. I'm just honoring the Lord. And I told this individual, remember Romans 12, 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's an amazing verse. You know why? Because God knows there are going to be people who do not live peaceably with us. So we can't do nothing about that. So he said, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Wait till we get to Romans 12. We need to be preemptive and think about the things that are coming. Let's do a case study. Let me prove that this is actually a biblical way to see. Go to Hebrews 11. Let's do a case study real quick. 
We're going to go back to a verse I, I referenced a couple sermons ago in Moses. Let's do a case study. Let me show you that this is actually a biblical strategy. So I'm not just preaching a topical, taking this and twisting it. This is actually a biblical strategy. I told you in context what Paul's after. Now let's look at this from a standpoint of it being strategical. Let's, let's apply this. Look at verse 11, chapter 11 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 24. Now I've referenced verse 25 in a couple, couple sermons ago, but let me give you this verse 24. Listen to this. By faith... Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. All right? Verse 25. And chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. And we've heard 25 before, but this is God's definition of sin and what Moses was doing. That sin is a fleeting pleasure. As we've said, as I said two messages ago, there is pleasure in sin. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. I don't care what it is. Even if a person is cutting themselves, we might think, why would you do that? But there's pleasure that people derive from that. Let me tell you, most people, whatever you do, it's because you benefit somehow from it. So maybe the cut hurt, but the attention you get after it is beneficial. Or maybe the cut was pleasurable. Whatever it is. Sin is a fleeting pleasure. So that's not my category. Scripture has that as a functional category. It's a fleeting pleasure, which means it's not going to last. And for all of us who can attest to this, you give in to sin, you hold on to bitterness, you like keeping a record of wrong, you like thinking, gossiping about people. It feels good in the moment, but then at some point, you're going to feel the death of it you're going to feel the death of it. By God's grace, you'll actually notice that it's having an effect on you that's negative. So he says he, so even though resisting sin is a gift, in experience, it is a form of suffering. A lot of times when we think of suffering as a Christian, I think we think of our brothers and sisters in places like China or the Middle East or people who are going through a real hard time because they believe in Jesus. No, 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 no. There are levels of suffering. Okay, there's suffering because you believe in Jesus, and then there's suffering as a believer in Jesus. All Christians who resist sin are suffering as a believer in Jesus. Why? Because there are things that we actually want to do sometimes. There are things that we want to do. To not do them would be to be more transparent or expose ourselves in ways that we're afraid of. So it's it's a form of suffering. So whether you die because you believe in Jesus Christ or you die as a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to have some degree of suffering. Moses chose to experience circumstantial suffering because he, he knew that sin was a fleeting pleasure. It was beneficial. This is God's perspective on what Moses was doing. But when we get to verse 26 is when we see the application of Romans 6.21. Hebrews 11.26 says this. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So believing in Jesus and the suffering that comes from that is better than not having to struggle and just following a sinful lifestyle. But here's what the verse says. Here's the strategy. Since he was looking ahead to the reward. This is good intel on Moses. Moses, God is saying, Moses chose to suffer now, resisting the fleeting pleasures of sin in this lifetime, in his lifetime, because he was looking ahead to the reward. So Moses is thinking, man, I could, I could enjoy the pleasure now, but what's the fruit that's going to come out of it? So he said, no, he sees the fruit is going to come out of it. It's fleeting. It's fleeting. 
So I would rather resist now because it'd be better later. Now, it sounds like, oh, okay, cool, that was Moses. Stop for a second. Think about Moses' life. Think about his life. Moses' life wasn't easy. I mean, these verses tell us something about Moses, but to fully understand the power of these verses, we have to remember the challenges, the setbacks, and the failures that Moses had. And with all of that in following God, I mean, Moses is having conversations with God like, hey, look, don't kill your people. Like, look, don't kill them. I know they sinned against you, but please don't let those people say that you saved these people just to do worse to them than you did to them. I mean, Moses is telling God that on the mountain. I don't know how deep Mount Sinai is, and I don't know how in shape Moses is, but his calves had to be incredible because (laughs) you walking down the mountain with two stone tablets that God wrote with his own finger, and then you break them. And then God says, get two more and come back up. (laughs) Going downhill is always easier than going uphill. Moses now has to walk back up the hill to the top of Mount Sinai with these two stone tablets. I can assure you of one thing that I think is eternally true. Moses ain't dropped them tablets again. (laughs) I can tell you that. Calves is like as wide as this. Moses had challenges. Following God wasn't easy. In fact, Moses disobeyed God and couldn't even get to the promised land. But we get no indication that even when Moses was disciplined by God, that he gave up and said, God doesn't love me. He's not blessing me. I can't even go to the promised land. No, Moses died as a man of God so much so that when Christ transfigured, Moses was right there with him. How did he live? He was looking ahead to the reward, knowing that, yes, this is pleasurable, but it's not going to last. Brothers and sisters, this is our strategy. This is a gift from the Lord. It's not going to last. And all of us have experienced it. It doesn't last. What's the fruit of our giving in the sin when we're ashamed of it after we're done with it? What's the fruit? Now you can't leave. Now you can't feel confident in your relationship with the Lord. Now that's not actually true, but that's our experience. Now up to this point, the last few messages we've been kind of asking one question. You know, and the question is, are you fighting, right? So we talk about, are you aiming your weapons at the sin in you or the sun in you, right? We talked about, are the commands burdensome? Are you, Mark 4, are you worried about things distracting you and not using, okay, all those things are asking, are you fighting? This question changes it to how are you fighting? How are you fighting? Today, we have to evaluate a different question. How am I fighting? Am I on the defense? If you watch a boxing match, you ever seen a boxing match? And if it's a defensive fight, if the fighters look like they're not trying to, you know, it's just taking hits and doing all that, and eventually just ducking each other and all that, what does the crowd do? Boo. You know why? you ain't coming. Look, defense wins championships, but defense don't win no fight. I mean, part of it, but you got to go. You got to throw a punch. Now, there's a strategy. If you Muhammad Ali, you might be doing a rope-a-dope for a minute just to get him tired. But then after that, oh, Muhammad Ali tags him. Oh, he comes with the left. He comes with the right. And then he knocks him down. Oh, it's a coming. That's my Howard Cosell, you know what I'm saying? That's a strategy. But at some point to win that fight, You got to go on the offensive. You got to throw some punches. All you can do defensively is hopefully survive and not get knocked out. The boss, the the trainers would be like, get off the ropes, get off the ropes. 
They want you to move. Get to the center of the ring. Move your feet. Shift your feet. Watch his jab. When he throws that jab, come with the right hook. You'll never hear a trainer say, don't punch. That trainer won't have a job. He'll be selling punch at the fruit stand. The punch, he told him not to throw. He's drinking. This is a good punch. It's not going to happen. You got to punch to win a boxing match. Church, we have to punch to fight the good fight of faith. We can't just be just, just so tempted. I'm just, just so nervous. It's always this. You know what you do when you're not tempted in that situation and you know that temptation might be coming? Start getting ready now. Load your gun now. Get ready now. Think about how am I going to feel if I fail when I give in so that when the temptation comes, even though it's strong, you know that I'm going to feel terrible if I give in. And that's part of the way I choose to follow Christ. And I would rather suffer now and fight this temptation than give in and then feel like I don't even know Christ after it. We go on the offensive. This is what athletes do. There's a book I have called How Champions Think, both in sports and in life. I want to read you an excerpt from this book. It's not a Christian as far as I know. This is called How Champions Think. This guy is a trainer and a, um, uh, like a doctor who, who helps athletes. This is what he says. He's talking about setbacks. Here's how athletes process setbacks and things. Champions, LeBron James, Michael Jordan. He has all these names of people that he's worked with that he's seen up close. And he says this. That's the way champions think after the setbacks and losses they inevitably suffer. Misfortune happens to everyone. Champions just refuse to let it push them into doubtful, fearful thinking. If they miss a fairway, then they think about how good it will feel if they make the birdie from the woods. That's golf for those who don't know. If they miss a green, they think about how much they enjoy showing off their chipping, pitching, and bunker play. If they hit a mediocre bunker shot, they think about how great it would be to make a 20-footer for, for par. If they have a bad round, they decide the odds will be in their favor next time. Their optimism makes it easy for them to stay juiced, excited about their prospects and willing to work hard. It would indeed be illogical to persist if you thought you didn't have a chance to succeed. I understand that everyone, including champions, has occasional doubts. No one should be upset if doubt occasionally enters his mind. But whether they are golfers or people in other endeavors, individuals who achieve durable, frequent success are optimists. They shake off their doubts and know that in their heads and in their hearts that in the long run, they are going to be successful. They're going to have great careers. Everything will fall into place and wonderful things will happen to them if they keep doing the right stuff. I think there's proverbial wisdom here for us that we need to think differently about who we are in Christ. Stop thinking of ourselves as sinful, as failures, and as people whom God is, you know, probably is offended at or tired of or whatever. That sin is just, even though we know it has, we know that it's, it doesn't have power over us, but we live like it does. Let me start thinking more in the biblical optimism that we are who God says we are. We are sons and daughters. That the power of sin is gone, but the presence remains. And that temptation, listen, you can't be anything unless you have opportunities to practice it. You can't be a boxer unless you have opportunities to fight. I took my son, I was taking my son to this train, this jujitsu stuff training, like boxing and all of this. And then after a while, I was just watching them. They kept doing all these drills. And I just said, hey, my man, do y'all ever spar do anything like that? And he was like, nah, we don't do that. We just keep doing this type of stuff. I said, so how do they know what you're teaching them is actually going to help them? And he was like, well, we just do that. I said, well, I just took my $75 a month out. <laughs> hey, I, hey, I grew up in the June Ree era, and he got beat up. And June Ree was one of the most popular karate teachers in his day. People stopped taking his classes after he got beat up. I was like, well, if my son doesn't know that he doesn't have, he can't prove that what he's learning is working if he never has a chance to apply it. You can't prove that you're a Christian unless God allows circumstances in our lives to make us act like it. 
How can you prove that you forgive other people if they don't sin against you and you have to practice it? How can you prove that Jesus is who you says he is if there's no temptation that you have to fight and resist to show that the power that's in you is greater than the power that's tempting you? The suffering that we experience is not because God is upset or doesn't love us or somehow we're failures. It's so that you get to practice the very thing that God says you are. You can't do anything unless you have a chance to apply it. You can't be anyone. What engine? Who? You can't be an engineer and you get a job and you just flicking paper cups all day. You go to school, you learn this stuff, and then if you just sat there and did nothing, you will quit eventually. You can't, you got to apply what you've learned. So when you get there, hey, we need you to, uh, we got this situation, this problem, we need you to fix this. Okay, cool. Uh, Stop pulling out your notes from college. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Twist this white. There's a sense where what you go through as a believer Think about that's anything. Anyone who has any college degree or whatever job you have, you're applying it. There's no such thing as a plumber without a plunger. <laughs> Coming from the best plumber in the world right now, who knows what was up? I said that for him intentionally. You can't be a Christian unless you go through things to apply it. So people will offend you. Temptation will come after you. Why? So that you can apply it. That's how you show who you are. What did Jesus say? If you love me, don't say it. If you love me, obey it. That's why we go through what we go through. That's why you have the trials you have. That's why I got to carry the cross I got to carry. We need to be offensive and not offensive. Go on the offense. This passage ends with these two verses. 22, he says, but now since you have been set free. So after he reminds them, the the fruit of those things are shameful. The wages of that is death. Like what you're experiencing is going to be death. And let me just say this. Time doesn't permit me to go into this. But when Paul talks about death, he's not just talking about physical death. Because in, in 1 Corinthians 15, He's saying, death, where is your sting? Paul's talking about the second death. He's talking about hell. He's talking about the second death that you can find in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, particularly verses 14 and 15. It says, well, God throws Satan and, and the Antichrist and the beast and all those who rejected Jesus Christ into the lake of burning sulfur, the eternal fire. And he says, this is the second death. This is what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about you're going to die. Everybody dies. Even Jesus himself died. He's talking about hell. The wages of sin. The pursuit of sin. He uses the word wages. You know what wages mean? Wages is a financial term. It means there's a debt that's owed. You've earned this. The wages of sin is death. The money you receive, what you've earned is death. And he's talking about hell, because everybody's going to die unless Jesus comes back and we're still here. He's not talking about physical death, just that. He's talking about eternal death. The wages of sin is going to hell. So the fleeting pleasure now, eternal torment later. Fleeting torment now, eternal pleasure later. We don't talk about hell enough. People act like it's going to be casually fun. But now, verse 22, since you have been set free from sin, talking to people who have believed in Jesus Christ and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. He's saying, now that you have followed Jesus Christ, you are set free from the power of sin. And here's the fruit of your life. You're growing and being more like Jesus. It's not always fun. It's not always as fun. It's not always glamorous. It's not always exciting. I remember when I, this used to, I used to hear this terminology years ago, especially when I used to 
do shows and go on tour and 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 preach in, in front of these these Christian conferences and, and uh, festivals and stuff. I used to hear this phrase all the time: "On fire for the Lord." And I'm, I don't, you know, I don't have a problem with that per se. I just always wondered what that really meant and how long you're going to be on fire. And I just never met nobody who was always on fire for the Lord. And I met people who can always say the phrase, but we're talking about always on fire for the Lord. So I just never used the phrase personally. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the phrase. I just don't like it because I think it almost sets like Christians apart. I ain't on fire for the Lord. I'm just trying to persevere to the end. I'm just trying to obey him and fight, and I'm going to fail at times, and sometimes I'm not. But what I want to do is go on the offensive and not think of myself as a failure already. That's part of the offensive strategy. Don't think of yourself as a failure already. You're forgiven for that. I would like to do something we don't do normally. I, I really believe that there, this isn't a time of condemnation at all, but I believe that there are a few of us who need to just be free from sort of the defensive posture, the, the lack of feeling confident because of struggles or habits and patterns that we all have them. One of the things that Jesus said in Mark 9 when they couldn't cast out this demon, his disciples, was said, some things come by prayer and fasting. I'd like to have a few moments where we're going to pray together. And if it goes too long and we end up not doing communion, then so be it. We do communion every Sunday. If, we do, if it goes too long, then so be it. But I want to have a time where I want some people to come up front. Some of those people I've talked to already, I'd like them to come up front. Some people I'm going to ask to come up front. Just to be here to pray for people who just want to say, this isn't about being ashamed. This isn't about, this is about, your, this is about hey, I want to reorient. I want to, re, I want to be better at training. You know, this is why we're doing, this is what the D groups are for. We finished Romans chapter 6. Next Sunday, we're going to just do two verses from Hebrews to help us process how do we process our D groups. What are they actually for? How do we use them? What do we do as a result of them? Because there's question. But for right now, I know this to be true. I'm not, it's not even sensing because I'm your pastor. I know many of you. Some of us just need to just pray and say, you know what? I think I've been living defensively. I've been living condemned. I've been living in a way that's just, just don't feel confident. You don't got to be ashamed of that. Because at some point, all of us feel like that. This message isn't to tell you, ha-ha, you're wrong or feel dumb. That's the enemy. This message is to say, look, there's other ways to do this. God is saying, look, I know who you are. Second Peter 1.9, he says, look, if we're not growing, he says, we've forgotten that we've been cleansed of our former sin. doesn't say if you're not growing, you're faking, you don't believe the gospel, you're a hypocrite. He doesn't say that. First John 2.1 says, little children, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, it doesn't say you faking, you don't believe the gospel, you a hypocrite. You know what he says? We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ. I'd like the members of the leadership team and their wives, if possible, to come forward. And I just want to have a time where some of us can come up and just pray and just pray that God would strengthen us and renew us. Again, this isn't about condemnation. This isn't about any of that. This is about I want to be strengthened. I want to be ready to fight. I want to go on the offense. Defense is good. We're going to be, it's going to be defensive sometimes. But some of the stuff that we're doing is just like, ah, uh, we're not there. And could you come up, please? Carl and Carla, please come up. Could I get some theme music? <laughs> Always goes better with music. People feel safe. Just, just, just Katie. Just Katie on the keyboard. Thank you, buddy.
Thank you for serving us. I'm going to pray first, and then I'm going to actually, we're not going to do communion today. I'm going to pray first and then just allow us to be able to, to have times to pray. And I want to just, let me just say this. This isn't about you coming up and people look like, oh, look, this isn't about that. This is about us just saying, okay, I'm in, I want to be encouraged to fight because you know what? We'll feel it right now. We'll be energized. And then by Tuesday, man, the patterns and habits will be right back with us. This is about refreshing ourselves, reminding ourselves. This isn't a corrective moment. This is a moment of compassion, a moment where God is saying, hey, remember who you are. You may have forgotten that you've been cleansed. You may have been confused over the presence and power of sin. You are a son and a daughter of Jesus Christ. You are not a hypocrite. You are not a failure. You are not a backslider. You are someone who struggles and God is here to show mercy. Receive the grace that's here. Ask for prayer to be energized and to fight this week and carry the momentum that you may be feeling in this moment to live outside of this moment for his glory and our good. Father, we now... We now conclude our portion of the service, at least I do. And I just ask that you would not let this word fall on deaf ears. May not the jokes that I told that made people laugh be more memorable than the truth that is in your word. In fact, Lord, I would ask that every joke that I told would be forgotten if it will replace any truths that give, that give us encouragement to be like Moses, to be looking ahead. Help us to remember to ask the question of what's going to be the fruit if I give in to this? May that be what we memorize. May we take Romans 6.21 and memorize that and use it offensively. Use it for the offense, to, to, to remind ourselves on the front end before we fail. Help us to not look back and think of what we should have done differently and instead look ahead like Moses and choose to suffer now instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin because we're looking ahead to that reward, the reward that comes from you. Following you sometimes is hard, but it's not impossible. I pray in your name that you would help us to do so today and give some of us, maybe many of us, the courage to say, hey, I want prayer to continue to fight the good fight, not just defensively, but to start throwing blows. In your name we pray. Amen. We are dismissed as a church, but please come forward for prayer for those of you who want prayer.